Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak. And today I'll be speaking with Joseph M. Regal Jr. about his new book, Reading the Comments, Likers, Haters, and Manipulators at the Bottom of the Web. Joseph M. Regal Jr. is assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northeastern University and the author of Good Faith Collaboration, The Culture of Wikipedia, which is also published by the MIT Press. Joseph Regal, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Sure, I'm happy to. So after reading this book, I realized that comments online were, for me anyway, a little like air. You know, I know they're there, but I almost pay no attention to it unless I'm in a situation where I'm either looking for third-party feedback, such as I'm on Amazon or Yelp. And sometimes if it's like a really compelling article on what I would consider kind of a trusted news source like the New York Times, there seems to be a comment line, I might read that. Um, But was there a specific moment when you realized that there was a book in looking at comments kind of more as a general thing, maybe set it up as a taxonomy, or was it more a gradual realization for you that there might be something there? It was actually a surprise to me because I had been interested in feedback in online and offline communities. And for a while, that's what I was telling people I was working on. But I also just happened to be fascinated with comments. So on one hand, I'm just reading the comments sort of more generally and being both confused and amused and horrified. And then when I was looking at feedback in online communities, I was also seeing how sometimes these comments could be really helpful, how sometimes they could be emotionally tasking, and I was interested in the ways that people sort of tried to manage all of this. And so this actually, at some point, I was like, well, why not write a book about comments? As you said, it's almost like the air. I quote uh, McLuhan, who said something like, often media is like, water to the fish. You know, it swims in it, but doesn't really appreciate it's there. And so in this insight, I really did begin to realize comments are all around us, and why don't I address them uh, in whole? Now, as you put in the book, and obviously people know from the history, you know, soliciting feedback from readers or viewers of the audience, I mean, that's not new. That happened before the Internet. But how did the Internet change the nature of the conversation between the people, the companies that are producing the content, and then the consumers? You're right, Chris. One of the arguments I make is that comments have always been around. So I'm not trying to make an argument that this heralds in a new type of age never seen before. Uh, You can go back to the Michelin brothers who uh, owned a tire company and wanted to sell more tires to get, you know, by having people drive more by putting out a review of hotels and restaurants in the countryside. And they solicited feedback from their viewers if they, they said we had something in our guide and it said there was a photo room or a car mechanic and it's not there, let us know. And similarly, people have been making use of annotations since the medieval ages when they talked about things called marginalia where people would annotate and make comments in older texts. So these things always have been around. And I think some of the things that really makes it new is that one is scale. It's just that there's so many comments now so readily available to us. In the book, I, I mentioned an anecdote where I'm in a store and I'm shopping and I can pull out my app and with one button, click you know, and scan a barcode and immediately get all of Amazon's reviews. And I am kind of a review addict, but at the same point, I'm kind of ambivalent. I'm like, this is kind of odd. Um, so they just are sort of everywhere They're really easily accessible, unlike, say, if we return back to feedback. um, Before, in the past, like if I was in a public speaking group, I would imagine that the people in the public speaking group might give me feedback. But now, also, you're going to receive comments from people that you never even tended or even know. So lots of times now, comments are uh, unsolicited. 
And so really it's not, again, that comments have never existed before. They have always existed before. But this particular genre of communications, which are short, asynchronous, and reactive, um, it's just the pervasity and the scale, the ubiquity, and the ease of access that I think that does then make them different. So now people might think about comments affecting things. I mean, one of the things that came to my mind is I know that sometimes when you see popular culture, nowadays as something gets put out and there's feedback, particularly from what, what could be considered a hardcore audience, that you can see from the feedback that maybe it's altering to some degree how the producers, and not every producer, some content producers really will not change their their content by the feedback, but you can see sometimes the content will mention or kind of offhand something that was happening in comments. So I know you we talk about more comments, not only the stuff on Amazon, but on, on more consumer sites, but the stuff that goes on in popular culture, is that if people are, maybe have a grasp of that, is that something that you're talking about when you're talking about the power of comments and how they, shake, how they have changed in the internet age? Yeah, it's definitely a popular culture phenomenon. One of the th- I have a chapter in there where I talk about how comments are confusing and bemusing. And in that, I talk about, you know, going back just to reviews like this banana slicer review on Amazon and how there's a whole um, sort of selection of products that have these crazy, ridiculous, funny reviews. I talk about this phenomena whereby people would watch YouTube videos, and if there'd be sort of quiet, whispery, kind of rustling sort of sounds, they'd feel what they described as a head orgasm. And, you know, the the experience that these people had in sort of first encountering this phenomenon online and then finding one another and giving it a name, I think they call it auto uh, sensory, well, I forget, it's called ASMR and I can't even uh, say it, but just these really interesting things happen in the online context. And so I think very often producers of even more traditional content, uh, books, uh, podcasts and things like that, they do know that they are communicating with a group of people out there, and it's in their interest to reference and maybe even engage with that audience, because that really is a big characteristic of the media space we're in. Did Twitter change things? And not so much from the nature of the comments, per se, but just the fact that even faster than, say, a comment on Amazon or a comment on Yelp or even a comment on Apple iTunes, I mean, it's almost, with Twitter, it's almost real time. You're getting kind of the Vox populized. So did Twitter change to some degree how, I guess, comments are digested, or is it just it condensed the life cycle of how quickly people can see with the reaction of something that gets put out there? Yeah, the notion of a condensed life cycle, I think, is right. Again, taking the historical turn, if you go back 100 years, telegraphs were these short messages that could be uh, transmitted across the globe electronically and very quickly. And if you go back and you look at both the sort of scholarly literature and the popular literature, uh, there was this thing called neurasthenia. It was this nervousness, anxiety, uh, disease that sort of pervaded the American culture. And people would get treated for their neurasthenia. And if you go back and you look at uh, the the fellow who kind of really championed this disease, he actually blamed telegraphs because now if you were a business person and you were trading pork bellies, um, you no longer just had to deal with your local market. You now have to deal with the global market, and you could hear about all this horrible news the world over. So in some sense, Twitter is kind of like telegraph. Again, it's the sort of quality of the attributes that you talk about that have changed and then changed their effect on us. So, you know, you still had to go down to Western Union to send your telegraph. But today you can tweet, you know, in a blink of an eye. Like sometimes I even think people are sleep tweeting or I liken it to this thing called 
um, an implicit assumption test, which is a way for people to reveal their biases by having to interact with images and categorize them really quickly. It's something social psychologists do to discern biases. And again, it's, it, it's so quick that your uh, slow system two thinking can't really sort of correct yourself. And so your heuristics and your biases are revealed. And sometimes I think people are on their phone so quickly sending messages that they end up revealing their biases and say horrible things, even when they're not anonymous, which is sort of a whole topic related to topics. But even well-known, identifiable people say some really startling things. And I think it's because it is so quick and easy, um, we're not even really conscious sometimes of the things that we're commenting about. But it does keep event crisis PR people employed. <laughs> I mean, it does, sometimes certainly. I think that they develop Twitter just as another revenue stream. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite sort of uh, tropes in the current age is I've been hacked. And I'll talk <laughs> about a number of the cases because that's like the, the theme for the current age because people do say so many stupid things. So like Anthony Weiner and his famous crop shot, right? I mean, he sent this picture using Twitter, using his publicly identifiable account. He forgot to prepend the deal in there, which would have made it a... Uh, um, a private message, a direct message, and then his his immediate recourse was, I took it down, I've been hacked, and then it was kind of ridiculous. He talked about, well, maybe his picture was taken out of context, and again, it's like, well, what context would that have been appropriate in? I don't understand, um, but context is a big part of this, too. Um, I describe comments, online comments, as being sort of hypotextual. Hypertextual means like supertextual, and when we think about the web, it means there's all these connections everywhere, but Tweets and lots of other types of comments are also very contextual, but the interesting thing about them is it's so easy to take a screenshot or to retweet and to sort of send them in a different context. And I think this is why they cause so much controversy sometimes, because they are highly dependent upon context, but it's so easy to lose that context. So much like the I've been hacked retort, the second most sort of refrain you hear from people is, well, that was taken out of context. And I think both of those are really kind of interesting and telling about this comment world that we live in. We've been talking about comments as perhaps people's honest opinions, whether they actually want them public or not. But you do point out in the book, and maybe it's a, a statement to my naivete, that not every comment we read or not every comment stream we go through is necessarily put there just out of the goodness of people's hearts. So there's manipulation going on, and instead of necessarily an expression of a belief about, say, a person or a product or whatever, there's some rhetorical strategies going on occasionally and an attempt to manipulate it or persuade the readers. Uh, I was a little surprised. I, I'd heard that there were some questions about how Yelp ranked things and how that worked in their business review. I was more surprised to read about the entire industry that had sprung up regarding Amazon reviews. Uh, we could talk a little bit about Amazon. Because could you talk about more generally the comments as a rhetorical strategy, a conscious rhetorical strategy, as opposed to just kind of an organic comment about something in particular? Well, cer certainly. One of the things I point out in the book is these innocuous, tiny little messages that are circulating out there on the web, how we might take them for granted, or as the aphorism recommends, don't read the comments because you're likely to see something sort of horrible and offensive, but they are big business. Um, lot, I mean, Amazon and Google have been buying up companies for millions and millions of dollars because much of this is informing the decisions and our activities that we make in our everyday lives, whether it be should I go to a restaurant via Yelp or should I buy a book or a product on Amazon. So 
not surprisingly, and actually a lot of people appreciate that a lot of the comments and ratings and reviews you see out there are actually likely manipulated. Um, some researchers have done a, a bit of work and they estimate that 10 to 30% of the, the reviews and comments you see out there are likely fraudulent and fake. And the degree to which this is manipulated is really absolutely pervasive. You have uh, an, uh, a branch of the um, Thai military who uh, writes comments in favor of their monarch. You have um, shady people in Russia who do it on behalf of Putin. We've had intelligence agencies in the United States uh, put out solicitations for software that would help their people have multiple accounts, multiple pseudonyms, so they can go and sort of interact with terrorists who are recruiting online and have multiple accounts to interact with, easily move between them. So we have governments doing this. We also have companies doing this, giving people um, – free products in exchange for having a uh, good review on Amazon, or sometimes maybe they were doing coupons. Um, you can go on Yelp. I was just showing my students this the other day because we had an activity. And you can go on uh, Craigslist and find ads saying, do you like to uh, write reviews? If you have an Amazon account or a Yelp account, um, we'll pay you to write a review for these products. Um, and so really it is kind of like a wild west out there. And indeed, sadly, uh, I think even the platforms are doing a fair amount of the manipulation too. As we noted, Yelp, uh, you know, they can make a claim that they're actually kind of neutral and other people are the ones posting reviews. Um, but they still sort of manipulate those reviews or decide which one of those reviews they want to show to you. And I think some of that at least is informed by who is paying them. So if you're an advertiser, uh, you can pay Yelp to say, uh, I'd rather you highlight one of my positive reviews on my page than one of the negative ones, or I'd like you to show my ad on my competitor's page. And some people actually thought this was extortive of Yelp, and I'm somewhat sympathetic to that claim, but Yelp has done very well in the courts because of the particular law we have in America. It's Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which says that platform providers are not responsible for the content that its users post. And generally, I'm extremely sympathetic to that philosophy and that policy. But sometimes when you have sites that make their money by manipulating that content or even actively soliciting user-generated content, like in the example of revenge porn, or there's been sites that like put uh, claims about people having STDs up there and then you have to pay them to remove it, I think when the sites go that far, I think that is kind of problematic and we are starting to see some uh, regulation. Just uh, last year, I think the New York Attorney General uh, had a sting, and they busted a couple of people in New York State who were basically uh, web advertising firms that also would create fake reviews for their clients. So finally, some comments and feedback seem to be, apart from any manipulation, doesn't really seem to be more out there just to evoke a particular emotion and oftentimes that emotion is not a positive one some are trying to shock some are trying to disgust some are just trying to to really offend it seems the sensibilities of the people reading the comments the the general advice one gets on the internet is not don't feed the trolls do not respond to them because by responding to them you're just inviting the conversation um do you think that's a good strategy i think the idea of don't feed the Trolls, and it's been around for a couple of decades. It began on the Usenet discussion forums online, even before the web existed. I think it is, generally speaking, a good strategy, but it is nowhere near a sufficient strategy. Because when 
you know, when Usenet, when trolling began, you know, in the 90s uh, and became a thing, it was relatively harmless. These were people that you did not know. They did not sort of track you down and dox, which means to release or document your information, like where you live, your social security number is, all this sort of thing. Um, so the kind of harmless, funny, irritating trolling of the past, I think, has been replaced by something much different, which Biela Coleman and Whitney Phillips uh, have, have written about. And I'm looking forward to Whitney's new book. Um, you know, it now mixed in to play is something I call haters. So these aren't people who are just hoping to sort of enrage a community and then step back and watch people uh, fall upon themselves. I mean, these are people who are doing serious harassment, maybe with sort of ideological uh, motivations. And it, it, it's so much more confusing now, too. It's something I call a trollplex, which is if you look at some of the recent controversies online where people have been horribly harassed, you have this actually this mix of people involved. You have the people who are no notable people who are maybe being mean or snarky or nasty. And then you have the people who are being trolls, who are saying horrible things, though they might not be sincere. And then you have the people who are saying horrible things and who are sincere. And you may also have some people who are mentally ill who might do something horrible and drastic. And when you're at the center of that trollplex, you know, it can be very disorienting because you don't know what kind of people you're talking to. Just last week, it was revealed that someone who had been threatening um, a game developer here in Massachusetts, he had a YouTube video where he crashed his car and was screaming and freaking out and saying he was going to Brianna Wu's house to challenge her to a speed race and maybe even hurt her. Um, it was revealed last week that this person was actually kind of a weird comedian um, and a sort of troll. But again, if you're the target of that sort of harassment, you don't know if this really is an unbalanced person or if this is someone just having fun. Joseph Regal, the author of Reading the Comments, Likers, Haters, and Manipulators at the Bottom of the Web. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Pleased to do so. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at mitpress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.